Well, good morning. That was a lot of scripture, um, and it's my fault. I, I picked it. But you were just sitting, hearing a lot of reading, a lot of prayer. If you want to, you could take a big breath. You could stand up for a second. I um, just want to make sure we're all present to what God is continuing to say to us, to speak to us this morning. Uh, what's interesting is that Amazon Kindle, a few years ago, they released what the most highlighted um, line in any book is. And the book with the most highlights is the Bible. And the verse with the most highlights is found in our chapter today. It's Philippians 4, um, verse 9, I believe. And just goes to show you that there's quite a bit uh, of interest in these verses. This is the most highlighted one. People who are sensing and feeling anxiety, wanting to cast it on God. And that's a good thing. I do feel a little bit of extra pressure, though, to preach a good sermon if this is such a popular text. So be gracious with me. Shoot for the moon. Shoot for the moon. Even if you miss, you'll land among the stars. Mm, what, a, what a cute saying. That was Norman Vincent Peale. Peale was a minister uh, at Marble Collegiate Church, which is on Fifth Avenue in New York City. Um, and in fact, if you walk by that church today, there's this big bronze statue of him as if he's mid-oratory speech, you know, standing there. He's most famous for his 1950s bestseller, The Power of Positive Thinking. It was uh, a New York Times bestseller for 186 weeks. So I'm guessing maybe you've heard of it. Maybe you haven't. Shoot for the moon. Even if you miss, you'll land among the stars. If only I had such... Uh, pithy statements as a preacher. Maybe I'd get a bronze statue too. But he wrote that uh, positive thinkers are blessed with success in their endeavors. Okay? He wrote this in that book, quote, the secret of a better, more successful life is to cast off unhealthy thoughts, to make your mind healthy, feed it nourishing, wholesome thoughts, Formulate and stamp indelibly on your mind a mental picture of yourself as succeeding. Hold this picture tenaciously. Never permit it to fade. Never think of yourself as failing. You could say he gets this idea from a reading of Philippians 4, especially verses 8 and 13 saying, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And then verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Think positive thoughts and positive things will happen to you. Peel said, again, quote, expect great things and great things will come. Now, you may have to set your political thoughts about him to the side. 
but the best case study of Norman Vincent Peale's philosophy is Donald Trump. He grew up attending Marble Collegiate Church with his parents. That's where Donald, his dad, Fred, that's where they went. His first wedding was officiated by Reverend Peel. And in, let's just go through some of Trump's life and see these connections, okay? In a 2009 interview with Psychology Today magazine, Trump described how in 1990, his crumbling empire was mired in massive debt. Bankers had threatened foreclosure, and even some trusted aides and friends were urging him to hang it up and move on. However, Trump, citing his family's friendship with Peel, said, quote, I firmly believe in the power of being positive. I refuse to give in to negative circumstances. I never lost faith in myself. I didn't believe I was finished, even as the newspapers were saying so. Now, this is in reference to the 90s. In 2016, Trump said, Reverend Peel was the type of minister that I liked. He instilled a very positive feeling about God that also made me feel positive about myself. In fact, it was in this same interview, which took place in Ames, Iowa, that Trump um, said he doesn't really recall ever asking God for forgiveness. Now, with Peel as his longtime pastor, you can understand why. The idea is to think positively. Now, Trump became the president of the United States of America. The power of positive thinking allowed him to bounce back from mil losing millions and millions multiple times to fill the highest office in the country, perhaps in the world. He was the first one elected without any prior government or military service. But four years later, he was also the first one in over 150 years not to attend the inauguration of his successor. He was also the first one to wait hours before calling out a riot on the Capitol. He was also the first one to claim over and over again that there was election fraud. Certainly, he could not lose. This couldn't exist in his psyche because of this philosophy of Norman Vincent Peale. It wasn't an option. So much so that he leaves the White House to what song? The YMCA, the happiest song you could think of. It's fun to stay at the YMCA. He's leaving in joy. Good feelings. These verses in Philippians, coupled with the power of positive thinking, are dangerous. Let's continue in our text. This chapter of Philippians is undoubtedly rich, and it all begins with an internal struggle. Remember, in the Philippians, Paul addresses a church who is facing external persecution and internal dissension. 
And he, and he kind of uses that rhythm. First he talks about what's going on externally and then internally. And then he goes to externally again and then internally. And here Paul brings us back to an internal struggle, perhaps shedding light on the primary internal struggle in the Philippian church. He even calls out the two parties by name. And this is pretty rare um, in letter writing in Paul's day. But he says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion. Some translations give the name of this Greek word. They're not sure if it's a Greek word that's saying true companion or literally naming someone. But I entreat you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. To call these two women out by name at the end of the letter is rare. Uh, but Paul does it in this way where he's still being kind, yet still pointed. I'm obviously talking about you two here. And he asks them to agree in the Lord. And, and that's the same language that's in Philippians 2 in the first little bit. Philippians 2.2, 2, it's this language of having the same mind. That's what the Greek is saying. Yodia and Syntyche have the same mind. And then back in 2.2, 2, two chapters ago, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. This is right before Paul tells the entire church that what? Have the mind of Christ who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Paul says that for Christian conflict management, it is vital for all parties to take on the mind of Christ, the God who humbles himself. But note this too. Paul also asks for someone to help. He asks the true companion or perhaps that that name of the person to help sort of serve as a moderator in their reconciliation in Paul's absence. Why? Well, maybe these two women are just in disagreement, and then perhaps by being humble, they could work that out together. But maybe one of them is truly the victim of the other. And to ask a victim to empty themselves without a moderator there who's aware of the details is dangerous and unwise and can simply perpetuate oppression in sort of the name of false unity. It's very hard for people who disagree to be reconciled, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's actually very hard work, and um, I wish it was easy or the church would look different, but it's hard work to heal internal dissension within a community. And it's nearly impossible if that community also has external struggles, external pressures on them from the culture. These external struggles, in the Philippians' case, the Roman persecution and the competing false gospel they exacerbate this internal struggle. 
And what they do is they add anxiety to anger. You cannot address internal disunity if you're full of anxiety about an uncertain future. It simply won't work. You'll keep placing your anxiety onto that party you disagree with. The only possible way for the Philippians to be reconciled to one another and remain faithful in the midst of persecution is with a profound sense of God's presence with them. So this whole letter of Philippians is Paul trying to show them First, with the example of Christ, and then again with the example of his own life, that all of this suffering and hardship is an opportunity to empty yourself of that which doesn't really satisfy anyways. It's this opportunity to create space to be filled with the very presence of God, and only with that filling of God will there be any possibility of true Christian community. Because if you sense that God is near, you can be safe in the moment despite the circumstances, and you can truly listen to the person you disagree with. You can bear the uncertainty of the future because you know the God who is love will not let you go. Paul uses himself as an example again in this chapter in verses 11 to 13. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, And I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul says he has learned the secret to contentment. Norman Vincent Peale says that the secret is positive thinking. No, friends, the secret is gratitude. It's a secret hidden in plain sight. In recent years, neuroscientists neuroscientists have discovered that fear and gratitude don't exist in the same parts of our brains. Fear resides in the amygdala, the reptilian part of our brain. Feelings of gratitude actually activate our neocortex, the front of the brain where sort of higher thinking, critical thinking, where all that takes place. Indeed, researchers now believe that gratitude and fear cannot exist at the same time. that gratitude actually processes fear, effectively driving fear out, taming it, and giving us human beings the possibility of acting with courage, hope, joy, compassion, all things that are necessary for a community to be reconciled and deal with internal disunity and external persecution. 
So you can see the wisdom of God in Paul's words to the church. I'll read these famous verses beginning with verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness or your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You will be guarded. You are safe. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, Whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about or meditate on or fill your mind with these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Does it sometimes feel Like God is far away. Maybe he's in the background or he's busy with someone else or something else. Or maybe, you know, theologically or doctrinally, you know, you you know he's here, but experientially he might as well be in Timbuktu. Paul says, practice Gratitude, practice these things, practice gratitude, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, when Paul says to think about and meditate on whatever is pure and lovely and honorable, is he talking about positive thinking? Is that how I'm supposed to get rid of my anxiety? Just think Happy thoughts. Gratitude is different from positive thinking. By the way, it's fine if you are mostly a positive thinker. I mean, the world could do with more optimists. That's fine. But it's different from what Paul is getting at here. He's getting at gratitude, which is different from positive thinking at least in two ways. The first is that gratitude pulls you into the present. Okay? While positive thinking can be about ignoring the negative present moment and imagining the future in which you're successful, gratitude is about becoming aware of the present moment. Okay? Notice two things from the verses I just read. First, Paul says to present your anxiety-inducing requests to God. He doesn't say ignore them. He first says, present them to God. You cannot pray about what you are unaware of. It won't go very well. Don't ignore them, but turn them into prayer. Second, Paul lists a bunch of whatevers. Whatever's lovely, whatever's just, whatever's honorable, etc., right? Whatever's pure. In other words, look around you. Find whatever is beautiful, true, good, worthy of praise, 
in your present moment. Pay attention. The poet Robert Cording, he says, attention is simply a loving look at what is. I think we come to know the world not by detaching ourselves from felt experience, but by inhabiting our bodily experience as richly and wakefully as we can. Attention is a loving look at what is. The same can be said of gratitude. It's a loving look at what is. To bring it closer to home, right, in Gilead, the novel by Marilyn Robinson here at our Iowa Writers Workshop. She has John Ames, who is the main character. He's this minister. He's the narrator of the book. He remarks, This is an interesting planet. It deserves all the attention you can give it. He becomes aware of what's going on in front of him. Gratitude pulls you into the present reality. It awakens you to the present moment. Rather than trying to avoid it because it's hard or uncomfortable or negative, because it's full of suffering and sadness, gratitude situates you within the reality of the present suffering and asks you to open your eyes wide enough to see the hand of God even there. So rather than Paul advising those who deal with anxiety to ignore the present reality for the sake of a fairy tale success, he says to become aware of the present moment, knowing that in prayer, God indeed is present in this moment, here and now. Not only does this kind of success-driven, positive thinking take us out of the present, but so does anxiety. In fact, anxiety is often just anticipatory grief. The grief counselor David Kessler, he says this, anticipatory grief is the mind going to the future and imagining the worst. To calm yourself, this is what he says to do, you want to come into the present. He says, this will be familiar advice to anyone who has meditated or practiced mindfulness, but people are always surprised at how prosaic this can be. And this is what Kessler says to do. He says, you can name five things in the room. In the present moment, look around and name five things. There's a computer, a chair, a picture of the dog, an old rug, and a coffee mug. It's that simple, he says. And then breathe. Realize that in the present moment, nothing you've anticipated has happened. In this moment, you're okay. You have food. You are not sick. Use your senses and think about what they feel. The desk is hard. The blanket is soft. I can feel the breath coming into my nose. So he's saying to deal with anticipatory grief, anxiety that manifests in that way, come back into the moment and do whatever you can to physically be present there. That's a good first starting place. But Paul says gratitude takes it one step farther and actually thanks God for what we see. 
Right? So you, you pay attention to the present moment, but then we begin to realize just how close and active God actually is in our lives. Everything becomes a reason for prayer in this case. The penny on the sidewalk becomes a reason to begin singing the doxology. We become everyday, ordinary mystics. And a mystic, by the way, is just someone who knows experientially what they believe to be true theologically. You become an everyday mystic. Gratitude pulls you into the present, and it's there that you meet God. That's the first way it's different than positive thinking. The second is that gratitude actually pulls you out of yourself. It pulls you into the present and then out of yourself. While positive thinking is ultimately about believing in yourself, gratitude is about believing in others, especially God. Gratitude is not positive thinking. In fact, gratitude will actually cause you to not feel positive most of the time. It can actually be very difficult because it requires that you recognize your dependence on others. And that's not always positive. You have to humble yourself in the sense that you have to become a good receiver of others' support and generosity in order to be grateful. To present your requests to God is to admit that you cannot deal with them on your own. Prayer and gratitude is nearly impossible for the self-sufficient positive thinker. Gratitude is a way of seeing and paying attention that notices at the same time our lack, our emptiness, and God's abundance. There is more than enough. To live a grateful life is to see all of life as a gift. And all of a sudden, life becomes less about us and more about the giver. I love, there's, a, there's this guy named Brother David Stendelrost, and he's an Australian, an Austrian, not Australian, an Austrian Benedictine monk, Christian monk. He's in his 90s, and <clears throat> he still speaks publicly, and he often speaks about, about gratitude. And this is one of the things he says. I challenge you to think this thought as you wake up in the morning. You think this is just another day in your life? It's not just another day. It's the one day that is given to you today. It's given to you. It's a gift. It's the only gift that you have right now. And the only appropriate response is gratefulness. If you do nothing else but to cultivate that response to the great gift that this unique day is, if you learn to respond as if it were the first day in your life and the very last day, then you will have spent this day very well. Look, as your pastor, I deeply want you to experience the presence of God in your everyday, ordinary life. 
And alongside Paul, I believe practicing gratitude is a great place to start. For some people, this looks like a journal. Maybe you're one of those people. Maybe you know one of those people. They have a gratitude journal. They write in it a few things that they're thankful for, maybe accompanied with a prayer of thanksgiving to God. We do that every day. For others, this might look like setting a reminder on your phone, a little gratitude reminder right before bed, so you know to sort of scan your day as your head's on your pillow and say thank you for a few things that happened that day. Um, Sarah, my wife, put this little jar on our dining table with some sticky notes next to it. And the idea is whenever there's something you notice that you're grateful for, you write it on the sticky note and you put it in the jar. I will say at this point, she has more sticky notes in the jar than me, but it's not a competition. It's not a competition. I know someone who has a binder and it's full of Polaroid uh, pictures. And they take it anytime a person who they're grateful for in their life lets them, or uh, of their dog, or of a tree, or whatever it is. And they scan through the binder every now and then and just remember the hand of God in their life. The presence of God that indeed is near. Look, get creative with how God wired you. But the idea, the idea is to regularly, even daily, practice gratitude. Commit to it. You will not automatically wake up one day and be a grateful person. If that is your hope, I hate to tell you, you're waiting for the wrong thing. It's not just going to happen one day. You have to practice to grow. Practice gratitude. Begin doing it. Start small. You'll begin to see that God indeed is near. At the end of the letter, Paul is doing this. He began doing it, practicing thankfulness for the Philippians, and he ends doing it, thanking the Philippians for their financial support, how through their sacrifice God has provided for him. And Paul wants them to know that it's reciprocal. He wants them to know the God of peace is with them. And so in verse 19, towards the end of the letter, he says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. According to his riches. According to abundance. God has more than enough, and he will give it. He will supply you all your needs. The overarching theme of Philippians is joy. Joy is an excess of contentment. It's more contentment than we know what to deal with. And so it sort of abounds in joy. It abounds in response, in praise. It's this sort of living with open hands. Again, emptied out with open hands because of a deep-seated trust that Christ is a God who fills us. The pathway to this excess of contentment, to this joy, is humility, it's emptying yourself, and it's gratitude, shaping your worry into prayer. The church throughout time has practiced something called Eucharist. 
And you might know it as the Lord's Supper, as communion. It's a feast of gratitude. You know, Eucharist in the Greek, it just means thanksgiving. It means thanksgiving. Christ sets a table of gratitude. He sets a table of abundance. So friends, it's here in this meal that we see our worry and anxiety transfigured into praise. It's here in this meal that we see our emptiness filled with the very presence of God. It's here in this meal that we learn to see the beauty and nearness of God in everyday stuff. I'm talking about plain loaves of bread, Welch's grape juice. We see the presence of God in tiny plastic little cups with hard lids to open up. God is here. It's here in this meal that we see God given for us. Love poured out for our sins.